The writer John Berger once wrote, This seems to me absolutely one of the quintessential things about the human condition, living with those who have lived and the companionship of those who are no longer alive. Not necessarily the people that one knew personally. I mean, the people perhaps whom one only knows by what they did or what they left behind. This question of the company of the past, that's what interests me. And archives are a kind of site in the sense of like an archaeological site. Well, my guest today on the program can certainly relate to that. After all, she is an archivist and that's what she does for a living. Who's my guest? It's Jackie Clary. Let me tell you a little bit about Jackie Clary. All right, so imagine this. The thing you do really well as a kid, the thing natural to you, comes your career. In the case of my... That's exactly what happened. Jackie Clary is a born archivist. As a young girl growing up in California... She was a huge fan of Wham! and George Michael, and she started collecting ephemera that was related to them and their music. But it didn't stop there. It turned out that Jackie had a librarian-like penchant for cataloging and preserving a lot of things that extended far past Wham! Now, Jackie has had a really cool career, and this list of her accomplishments I'm about to give you, just keep in mind, it's only a partial one. But one read through even the partial list, and you'll get the idea of what she's done. And believe me when I tell you this, she's done a lot. She worked at Real and in the Years, researching and cataloging a 20,000-hour-strong cache of interviews and music performances. She ran the tape library for ABC News affiliates. She worked for MTV News and Docs. She produced the videos for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit Roots, Rhymes, and Rage, The Hip Hop Story. And she was the lead curator of the Hall's first Teen Idols exhibit. She's also worked on a lot of DVDs, including Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, The Temptations, and she interviewed Engelbert Humperdinck for his Greatest Performances DVD. She was the associate producer on the 12-DVD Merv Griffin box set, produced an oral history on Newport Beach's Carden Hall School, and she worked as the archivist on documentaries by everyone ranging from Little Richard to Michael J. Fox. Look, Jackie's the coolest, and in this conversation, she talks about how her curatorial skills emerged early on as a kid and paved the road to where she is now. Let's meet her, shall we? Here's my chat with Jackie Clary, right here on Stereo Ember Podcast. I was going through um, some favorite boxes of mine because um, my absolute favorite, George Michael, is being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. So super excited about that. So um, unasked, um, I am offering up anything I have that's George related to um, the fabulous curator at the Rock Hall. Her name's Amanda, and she's one of my favorite people. So I, um, because I used to work at the Rock Hall, I've stayed connected with Amanda all these years. And so I sent her a text and I'm like, hey, I'm sending you pictures of all my George stuff, whether you ask for it or not. So I was going through all my George stuff, and this is all the stuff that I kept 
from the time of being a Wham fan. So I have every issue of the George Michael International Fan Club magazine. I have all of the pull-out magazine like posters that were on my wall. So and mixed in with all of my saving of this stuff are like 10 issues of Stickers magazine. Um, there was another like a Cabbage Patch Kid magazine like that. I have all of those. And I also have the first 50 issues of Sassy magazine still. Oh my God. So to your point about like, was it always in you? Yeah. Cause I was always saving that stuff. And what's really funny is like, why was I saving it? Um, I don't know that I knew why other than I enjoyed it and um, having these things were interesting to me. I have saved almost all the letters that people have written to me through the years. I was a very prolific letter writer as a kid. However, I did lose a bunch to a leak in a, the garage at one point. I had them in a cardboard box, learned my lesson there. See, archi archivist uh, mistake number one, do not keep things in cardboard boxes. I learned this in 1987 when I lost a whole trove of letters. So yeah, I've always... Um, I've always kept things. And, you know, two other things came to mind when you asked that one is when I started getting cassette tapes as a kid, I kept them in the order that I received them for the longest time. And it was like, I had, you know, uh, chipmunk rock was first and flash dance was second and thriller was third and color by numbers was fourth. And for the longest time, I kept them in that order. And it's funny because now in my work, my brain works that way. Like I remember when I get things or when I received an email or when I remember when it came into my world. And I think back to how I used to keep my cassette tapes and how that particular order was important to me all those years ago. It's almost like you were born with this kind of organic need to preserve. Yeah. You know, it just, it never made sense to me to get rid of something. And both, you know, my mom and my husband would tell you all about that, you know, but I mean, that doesn't mean that through the years I haven't gotten rid of stuff. I surely have. Uh, like you were talking about moving. I've moved several times in my life. And so through the years I have had to get rid of things. There are things I am really sorry I got rid of. And there are things that yeah, you know, I just couldn't save every issue of Rolling Stone magazine, no matter as much as I wanted to, my physical space didn't allow for that. So, you know, I absolutely admire and love the folks that have been able to preserve a garage full of VHS tapes. That is so amazing. I just haven't had the ability to do that. I still have several bins of VHS tapes. I lug from move to move to move, but yeah, it's always kind of been in my nature to save stuff. And uh, you want a cool story? Yeah, I love, I, I, I <laughs> love a, a cool story. Here's a cool story that I, that that's on Facebook. But um, so if you know anybody listening can actually see it referenced on Facebook. Um, so when I was in eighth grade, I think this is a really good illustration of how I save stuff and how somewhere in the back of my mind I know it's going to be worth something all these years later. And when I say worth something, I don't necessarily monetarily mean worth something, just worth something. Although in this case it was monetary. 
So in eighth grade, um, I had to write a term paper um, on a topic of my choosing. And it just so happened in February of that year, um, we were on a family vacation in Hawaii at a really amazing resort called the Kahala. At the time it was called the Kahala Hilton, but now it's just called Kahala um, in Honolulu. And I had to come up with a topic. And at the Kahala, to this day, they have a lagoon that has dolphins in it. And at the time, they had three dolphins in that lagoon, uh, Maka, Eva, and Nihoa. And I, um, we used to go to this resort a lot when I was a kid. But the last time I went was this trip in eighth grade when I was 14. And I'm looking at these dolphins. And I was like, oh, I'll write about marine mammal training. So I get back home to Orange County and wrote my paper on marine mammal training. And I think I did well. I have the paper. I'm sure I think I got an A, but I have the paper somewhere. And so I sent a copy of the paper to the Kahala in June of 89 saying, hey, I dedicated my term paper to your dolphins. Thought you might want to see it. So this is in June of 1989. They write me back and they, they thank me for sent, sharing it with them. They send me this really nice little glass um, statue of a dolphin and say the next time I'm in Hawaii, they'd like to give me a free behind the scenes tour of Sea Life Park. So of course, that's super cool. Take to 2022. I did not get back to Hawaii until 2022. <laughs> and I have this letter from 1989. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> I scan it and I attach pictures of me as a kid with the dolphins at the Kahala. And I said, hey, you know, we're not staying at the hotel. It was a bit out of our price range for our family trip last year, but it's a special place. And this letter promised me this free trip to Sea Life Park. And I now know you do swim with the dolphin experiences at the Kahala. Would you make good on this letter? And no joke, they did. No way. All four of my family members, me, my husband, and my two kids got to swim in the lagoon for a half an hour with the dolphins that now live there. One of which is actually the calf of Maka and Eva. Oh so God. yeah. And that's all because I saved that letter from 1989. That's unbelievable. Your, your family must've been like, all right, I guess it does pay off. Right. Totally. No, like that's like my husband's like, okay, you can keep everything now. That's cool. <laughs> Was it, was it ever pointed out to you as a kid that you were saving things? Like, were, did your mother ever notice it? Or was it something you were just doing in private? Oh, yeah. I had so much stuff, which, by the way, was not the word that was often used. Um, <laughs> a little bit spicier word. Um, oh, yeah. It was always pointed out to me how much stuff I had. And I, and and the older I got, yeah, sometimes it was pointed out to me and like, hey, we don't have space to keep all your stuff or, you know, so not always, but sometimes. So I, I didn't get ki kind of self-conscious or conscious about it until like, you know, I moved out. Um, I had to clean out my childhood room when I graduated college and moved to the East Coast. And so it all had to fit into boxes. And essentially my folks were like, you get this part of the garage, that's it. So, okay. Um, so I had, so, you know, there was a lot of that. And then there've been times through the years that there was a time about six years ago, I went through a bunch of bins and I do kind of go, 
okay, so why do I have the centerpiece from the celebration of the play Tom Sawyer that I was in in 1991? Like, Mm -hmm. do I need this really big centerpiece that says Tom Sawyer on it? Or am I just good with the photo? So (laughs) there have been times where I kind of, I'll go through, I, I, my husband knows, I really hate being told to to go through something to like purge but sometimes I will like because like I said there's sometimes there's this gut that I I, I, there's just this gut feeling that I'm going to be glad to have this someday I don't always have that it's just sometimes there are things that really mean something to me you know I joke with my kids when they go through my stuff when I'm gone I tell them I said there's like two or three things they know mean a lot to me I'd like for them to hang on to but other than that you know keep what's important to you. Like, I'm like, talk to Amanda at the rock hall about my music stuff, please. But other than that, you know, keep what's important to you. How much of an emotional component was in your preservation as a young kid? I mean, like your enthusiasm for George Michael and Wham, um, like how much of it is emotional? And then, and is, when you start bringing emotions into it, is that the word dangerous is the wrong word, but is that, can that sort of blur one's um, judgment about what to keep and what not to keep? Sure, definitely. Because I can tie that into kind of what I do in my career. Um, So as I'm choosing my own things to keep personally, like the stuff that I keep the most are um, letters. I keep a lot of like, even I'll keep things that people have written on. Like, even if like, I keep all the envelopes from the Christmas cards I get sent every year because, you know, my kindergarten teacher wrote my address. I still exchange Christmas cards with my kindergarten teacher. Wow. And every year in her beautiful Miss Linda handwriting and Miss Linda is like in her sixties now, but I've been calling her Miss Linda since, you know, she was like 22. So I still call her Miss Linda. And she has this really beautiful Miss Linda handwriting. And yeah, I have a lot of it, including from when I was five, but that's the kind. So do I really need like all those handwritten envelopes from Christmas cards every year? No, but that's the kind of like the emotional connection, because to me, that's irreplaceable. And, and so that's often, I keep a lot of magazines too. And it's, um, I not nearly as many as I used to, and I've had to purge a lot through the years just because of space and VHS is the same way too. Um, I, yeah, there are shows and stuff I've gotten rid of through the years. I really wished I hadn't, but the reason I chose to got rid of them is I had limited space and I had to keep the episode of Silver Spoons with Whitney Houston on it because mm. that particular episode meant so much to me when it aired. Whitney meant a lot to me. And I, you know, kind of a lot of my love of pop culture and of Whitney and in 1985 pivots on that episode. So I keep that VHS tape that I recorded off of Nick at Night <laughs> with that on it. You know, I've got digital copies of that. I know other people that have digital copies of it. Do I still need that VHS tape? Probably not. But do I keep it? Yeah. Like the other day I was thinking I got rid of a VHS cop, my VHS copy of broadcast news. And I'm kind of sad that I did that. Like, I don't know, because that cassette, watching that in college meant a lot to me, but it's a VHS copy of broadcast news. Like, it's okay. I don't have that. So (laughs) So you're right. And I was saying, if I, when I take that then into what I do in my career and I'm engaging with people and asking them for their stuff, there's sometimes stuff I'm asking for 
you know, handwritten lyrics or photos are clearly a big one in, in what I do um, that they got rid of because, you know, it didn't mean something to them or they didn't think anybody else would care or, you know, that kind of stuff where I was like, oh, bummer. But also, as you know, because as you and I have talked in the past, I'll start riffing with somebody about the stuff that they have and they kept it because it was emotional to them, but then they didn't realize that there was, I find value in it too. Like, so to take it out of that personal context, like, you know, like all of my sassy magazines means that actually that's probably a bad example because I know a lot of people at all those sassy magazines would mean something too. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so when realizing something you've kept because it, it was emotional to you or like going through all that George Michael stuff, um, you know, what uh, it, it's always fascinating to me, like clearly as Amanda's putting together that exhibit, she's going to come at it from a different, she's a fan too. Um, but, but she's going to come at it from, you know, what she needs to meet her, her ends meet and not, of course, I'm like, here's my George Michael international fan club with my name on it that I wrote when I was 13, you know, and she's, you know, she's like, Oh, well that may not work into my context, Jackie, but you know, that, that, that 45 you have, um, would really fit a, you know, fill a hole. And I'm like, great. I bought that 45 off of eBay 20 years ago. It doesn't mean anything to me in an eighties context, but it certainly does in a George context And there. Everybody's needs get met. But I know what you mean, because there's a band that I've been obsessed with. And I, you know, I know the singer a bit. He's been on the show a couple of times. They were called Star Club and they signed the biggest deal with Island Records for a, a new band in like 1991 or two. And, and they sort of sparkled and faded quickly. Um, one record, that was it. And the singer was telling me, he's like, yeah, there's no photos. I have no photos from that time period. I have no recordings from that time period. And I guess maybe he thought somebody else would just do it or people would have it. And maybe, I don't think they do. So it's almost like they never existed, which is such a weird thing. Yeah, you know, and our culture is so different now that we all carry around phone, you know, phones with cameras on them, except... The crazy thing is I still feel very strongly that this generation of kids and even bands, to your point, are not going to have the footprint because it all lives in the cloud. And so we're not, you know, printing and keeping hard copies of stuff. So, you know, like the other day, you know, one of my family members gets this notice that, you know, their iCloud is and if they don't download everything in 30 days, they're going to lose everything because those things don't actually live on his phone. They live in the cloud. And I'm looking at this like, okay, well, we got to fix this. So I think of all those kids, all those band members that think their pictures are on their phone, but then they actually live in the cloud and then they disappear because they didn't realize how you know complicated the settings are. And then there it goes. Yeah, and, and that's that just seems to me to be one of the sadder things. Like I was noticing that the Gilman Street scene here in the Bay Area, the I can't believe how well documented that scene was from like 80, I don't know, say 85 to 92. Um, these kids were kind of, they were just kids. And, you know, they were taking pictures, they were preserving things, and it's a scene that is remarkably preserved by 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 teenagers. Um, I you know it's like a collective. I don't think we'll, I don't think we're going to see something like that um, these days. Well, I think the thing is, is that material 
exists. It just isn't being preserved. Right. And, and that's, you know, it's not like when you and I were of that age and in that, you know, that time period of the scene, like I'm talking about these bins that I have, you just, you take those photos and you throw them in a box or, you know, all the programs. I just did a presentation for pop conference in Brooklyn as um, PopCon's this great conference that happens every year on um, music writers and critics. And um, I presented a paper on um, taking uh, people who took dance classes as a kid and didn't go on to become professional dancers and what did they get from it? And I've been knocking this idea around in my head for a long time. And when I sat down to actually write the paper and I'm like, okay, how do I want to approach this? I pulled out all of my Irvine Dance Academy programs that my mom saved for me when I danced at a dance studio in the 80s. And I just started going through names. Every dance I was in, I pulled out names and I started finding people, some of whom I'd still been connected with on Facebook and some I had to kind of really dig to find. Um, I found some of my teachers, some I didn't. Um, But often people would say to me, how do you remember that we were in that class together. Mm. And it was kind of a combination of things, but it starts, I still had those programs. They got, yeah. tossed in, they got tossed in a box, thanks to my mom. You know, I still have them. My kids are going to have all that stuff too, because I have tossed all that stuff in a box through the years. When did you realize, like, I remember when I got my first check for the podcast and I went, oh my God, I get paid to do this. Oh. Um, when did you, <laughs> when did you, sort of realize like, holy cow, like my archival tendencies are now yielding money for groceries. Like when did you realize this was an actual career where you could, it's such an unusual moment where you could take the thing that you are so naturally good at and galvanize it into some kind of um, vocation. But that's, I know that doesn't sound rare, but it is. Yeah, you're right. And I think at the time, um, I didn't realize it was happening, but I kind of did. And here's why I say that is I always wanted to work in TV news. That was, so I kind of had these like kind of parallel things going on in my life as a kid and as, um, you know, a teenager where, yeah, I, I saved all this stuff. Right. And I um, was a prolific letter writer and I loved pop music. And I was a big TV fan and I watched a ton of TV news. And this all kind of comes together as a teenager when I watched a lot of MTV news. And, you know, MTV news has been a lot in the press these last few weeks because it was officially uh, dissolved a week or two ago um, as an entity. And um, uh, the heyday is long past, but it was sad to see it kind of officially dissolved. So I watched a lot of that as a teenager. And then I go into college and um, TV news and um, being a TV news producer becomes my focus. And my internship in college, um, which turned into my first job, was um, at ABC News. And I wound up, because this is where there was space for me, in the affiliate feed service called News One. And this is to your point about kind of when did you realize like old stuff that you love kind of becomes a career. And it was just this kind of wonderful like stroke of faith that I wound up in this division and what news one did 
is um, put up uh, material that the affiliates, the ABC affiliates across the country needed up on a satellite. So this is the mid nineties. So it's not, we can't send a we transfer, you know, when an affiliate needs footage, it, we had to have satellite time. And if the affiliate was doing a story on something that happened five, 10 years ago, or they needed random B-roll and it wasn't something that the affiliate had in their own archives, which often affiliates don't have, um, because tape is expensive and space is limited. So they'd come to us and ask for it. So at News One, we had both our own little archive in our office, but also I had access to um, all of the ABC News archive. So I could um, grab whatever the request was to fill and I could do it throughout the entire. So when when I realized that and I could like find any old episode of World News Tonight and get it, that just opened. Yeah. And then I, as an intern, I wasn't paid, but I did go to work for them and I got paid. And so that's when I, I'm like, oh, wait. And then my knowledge of like, I had to put together a clip reel of all of Ronald Reagan's kind of big sound bites. And it was a combination of research clearly, but also this was an era I had grown up in and knew well. So I knew what some of the highlights were and I'd written papers on Reagan in college. So kind of the access to the archive combined with my knowledge and interest, um, I was like, hey, look at this. And then I was that nerd that would go into work on a Saturday afternoon and pull old World News Tonight air checks just to watch because I could. And that's when, and then in all of the jobs that I've had where I've had access to these amazing archives. Um, so I was at MTV for a few years and I've been back through MTV, just the access to, wow, it just, it's so amazing. And that's, that's the, been one of the most wonderful things in my career has been access to archives to help whatever I'm working on. And then being a part of creating and maintaining these archives that other people can access to. In terms of, of translating that into documentaries or, you know, helping contribute to films, how did you make that transition? So I started my career on the production side. Um, so that was at, um, at ABC and at MTV, you know, creating programs and, um, some using archival, but not always, because especially at MTV, they were contemporary programs. Although I did get to work on some, you know, clip shows like Spring Break Uncensored, which was, you know, fun um, pulling like 20 years worth of Spring Break, you know, episodes and organizing them and that kind of thing. So I, I started in there. And then um, I moved from uh, Hoboken to Cleveland. And um, that's when kind of I flipped from working in TV production and TV archives to physical archives. Um, and so I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame doing physical, you know, getting stuff for exhibits. So I, that's when like the pop music part of my life moved to the forefront and the um, TV part of my life moved back. But yet the archival kind of was the constant in all that. And then when I moved from Cleveland to San Diego, um, I worked for a music archive, a music footage archive here in San Diego called Reeling in the Ears. And that is, no, so that was like the licensing side. So that's not the 
the creation of the documentary side, that's the um, creating and maintaining archives to, you know, help, uh, to help create them. So they would come to us. And so, and I was there for quite a long time. So as I, I think to point to your question, I've kind of worked in all these different facets of it to where I've landed now. So a couple of years ago, I realized I really did miss creating TV and creating films. And um, now having had experience in kind of all different kinds of archival um, footage, licensing it, you know, actual ephemera, you know, have, you know, physical archival, um, I could come back to production and have all these skills. And also importantly, when I was at Reeling in the Years, I picked up licensing skills. So now I, that's really where I learned the ins and outs of how to actually license the material. Clearly, I've done parts of that throughout my career. But so now here I am, you know, I've got my this. So as a freelancer, I get to work on all these different projects for all these different companies. And, all, you know, and I, it's kind of this culmination of all of these experiences I've had. And um, that's, so I, I've taken this little bits and all this knowledge from all these different places to kind of smash it all together and make me, I think, good at what I do. I <laughs> Hopefully I love what I do. I think I'm pretty good at it. Well, like for something like Wham, that's easy because you love it. When when you get hired for a project, which may not be, let's just say it's not in your wheelhouse in terms of, you know, maybe you weren't someone who grew up listening to the music or knowing the, the work of the person. Um, and you have to start from, uh, so you're not, you're not using your own passion for the subject matter because, you, you know, you did, it might, might even be new to you and you have to start at ground zero, I mean, starting at zero, I suppose, is that, does that present its own kind of challenge? Like, where do you begin? Yeah, really good question too, because I do feel I can do that. And I, um, and I think any good researcher can do that. So um, where do I start? So the first thing I do is try to read up as much as I can about the topic, the person, um, and I put together for myself kind of my own rough timeline, you know, of, you know, figuring out what the highlights of the career are or the highlights of the subject are or whatever it is. I kind of wrap my head around. I, I do my own research um, to understand what I'm working in. And not, you know, I don't just dive into the finding material. I need to understand what I'm, I'm trying to do here. Um, and then I do try to find, I seek out to chat with people who know the subject, um, often other researchers, other archive producers, but just fans. I mean, clearly if I'm working uh, on a project about a band or an actor or a prominent person, I try to find somebody who has knowledge to, because what I'm trying to do is figure out what I need to find. So I'm trying to figure out what are the big shows? You know, if we've got a band who um, had like, the most amazing performance and at Wembley Stadium, you know, like that's, sorry, that's so whamish. <laughs> I really should pick something else as an example. Um, okay, the, how about this? How about the Rose Bowl? Like, okay, it's like, I know a lot about Depeche Mode. I don't think it's necessarily, um, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm just trying to use it as an example of like, for instance, if you're doing a piece on Depeche Mode, 
um, the 101 show at the Rose Bowl is like the thing, right? So like you can't do if you can't do something, if you're doing an overview on Depeche Mode, you can't not address that. That's what I'm looking for when I'm I'm looking for the okay, what are the tentpole events in this person's life, in this band's life, in this topic that I need to know about. And so when I start then kind of understanding what those tentpole events are and then where I would source that kind of footage or who I need to talk to. And then, you know, and in, in what I do these days, everybody wants what you haven't seen before. So right. Right. <laughs> that's what everybody wants. And um, there's kind of, there's several definitions of that. I mean, there are places I know to go that have really great collections and um, things in those collections that maybe have not been part of a broadcast, or maybe they they just really do have like the best 50s Americana there is, and they really do have the best shot of a Ferris wheel. So um, I'm going to offer you this shot of a Ferris wheel, but I will look for other 1950s Ferris wheels. But I know that this company has a really good shot of that. I just made that up, by the way. I do not know what company has the best 1950s Ferris wheel, but I would find it for you <laughs> if you needed it. Um, I and then, it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, so, and then I would, you know, branch out from there. But I think that that's, I think it's important to both have like the resources I always go to, the companies I know that have good collections in various areas, but um, be willing to have a lot of conversations. I also always tell directors I work with and producers I work with, I'm a people person. I like people and I like talking to people. So I have no problem picking up the phone and asking people for stuff. And I think in what I do, that is helpful. Like I, I, you know, and that's how you and I met where I have no fear in emailing somebody and asking for a phone call. And strangely enough, that seems to be really unusual these days, but I find that the more I talk to people and find people to talk to, I learn more about the topic that I am responsible for finding material for. And the more I can learn, the more I'm going to find some interesting material. Now, sometimes people ask me for things that really do not exist. And after <laughs> digging and talking, I'll have to go back to the director and be like, I'm really sorry, but that clearly does not exist. <laughs> can we riff on other ways to represent that? <laughs> so that's, that's how I approach that. Right. There's the magical thinking of like, I know that like Kurt Cobain and Michael Stipe were talking about making a record together and, you know, there was a rumor for a while that some of the, that there was a session that might exist, but that was just all magical thinking. It, it didn't, it didn't get past the talking stage, but um, those are the kinds of things where you just want to almost like divine them into existence. Right. Right. And that's a really good example of, okay, we really, we have asked everybody we can ask for footage of that, for photos, for proof. And it just doesn't seem to be a thing. So, okay, if you want to include that as part of the story, like that maybe was a thing, let's figure out other ways to represent that on screen. But I am not going to find you that elusive photo of Cobain and Stipe together at a mixing board. I'm so sorry. It just really seems to not be a thing. 
Yeah, that also the rumor was that Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis is very similar kind of thing that may or may not even exist. But those kinds of rumored pairings are, you know, they live in your brain forever, but they may or may not even be true. Yeah. And then I think that's also the kind of thing that you always, again, it doesn't hurt to keep trying to ask, like, you know, you just, you know, if I found myself in a room with Janie Hendrix, um, which she's lovely, I did once lots of years ago, but if that was a thing that I was trying that wanted to be included in the piece, I would try to find a way to work into a conversation. Hey, you know, this rumor that's floating around, do you know, is this a thing? Like, where would I find photos of that? Because, you know, that finding that, you know, it's funny, one piece of advice, like I always give to kids graduating college or, you know, whatever, is if you get stuck in an elevator with somebody, know what question you're going to ask. Like, you know, that's like, because you've got 30 seconds and you want to bring something up or like, you want to know something like, don't be afraid to do it. I mean, what's the worst? They're going to look at you and be like, okay, no crazy lady. Like, <laughs> so, you know, so I think that that's, I'm not afraid to kind of ask those questions. Um, and even to email and call up people to ask them, you know, I may not get any further than like the best investigative journalists who've been trying for 25 years too, but hey, doesn't hurt to try. How do you know if something is a dead end? And have you ever thought something was a dead end and found that you were wrong? That has everything to do with time. Mm. Everything. Because I won't take no or a dead end for an answer if I've got the time to keep pursuing it. You know, I, because yeah, I, I am often told that, you know, oh, that, that tape got thrown out a bunch of years ago, or I never had that tape or, you know, stuff like that. And then very politely and also using colleagues and friends, Hey, would you mind checking that file one more time? Is there anybody else you can think of? that I could ask about that. If I've got a year and change, you know, to work on something and I can plant seeds and go back in a month or two, check in, plant a few more seeds, then that's great. But if I've got five weeks to find everything I can find on Neil Diamond, and the reason I said that is because from where I'm sitting at my desk, I can see a button with Neil Diamond on it. <laughs> that is why I just picked him. Um, then I am stuck with that five weeks that I've got. And, you know, this company wants to pay me for, you know, eight days worth of work or 10 days worth of work. And they want everything on Neil Diamond. Well, that's what I've got. If they say, you know what, um, all we want are the handwritten lyrics to I'm a believer. That's all I want. I'm like, okay. And how long do I have to find them? you've got two years. Cool. Here I go. You know, that's kind of a strange, you know, but, but it, a lot of it has to do with time because it does feel like some things I can just keep asking, keep asking and keep trying and keep trying. And um, maybe it will, but if I've got a deadline, if, you know, and then also there've been, I've been asked for a piece of footage where literally I gave the director 60 places. I tried to find it. And I just couldn't find it. But I was also doing that in conjunction with other duties I had on the film. Then 
you know, then we had, I had, to, we had to stop and we had to come up with something else or pick from what I'd already found. But if all I have to do is spend 50 hours a week finding this one piece of footage, okay, I can keep going. Mm, so it's time. Yeah. Uh, so much of this is time. And also, you know, you got to give people time too, because I can call somebody up and they go, I have that, that yearbook, yearbooks are a great example. I will find somebody who's in London, but that yearbook is in their mom's storage unit in Idaho. Okay. So are you going back to visit your mom anytime soon? Oh, maybe next summer. Okay. So it's March and maybe they'll be there in July. Okay, cool. Would you mind next summer when you're in Idaho going into your mom's storage unit and see if you could find it? That means in June, I send a very well-placed email. Hey, Bob, are you, you going to see your mom? And, you know, I'm still looking for that yearbook. I'd really appreciate it if, if you'd go visit your mom and pull that out of storage. And, oh, my trip got pushed to August. Okay, that's cool. You know, I, I'm, my timeline is good. And then randomly in October, I get scans from a yearbook from Bob. Mm. So that's a variation on a theme, by the way, but variations on that theme have happened to me several times. So having the time and planting seeds is really important. But if I don't have time, then I'm just realistic with a team as to what I can do in the time frame that they've given me. Do you feel that the subjects themselves, you know, I mean, George Michael or whoever it was, do you find that they are good archivists of their own stuff or, or do they mostly rely on other people? Well, I think um, it all depends on, um, on the subject. And so now's a good time to bring up Michael J. Fox. So, um, you know, I just worked on still um, a Michael J. Fox story, which just came out on Apple TV plus. And um, as part of when you watch the film, you'll see there's a lot of great personal archive of Michael's yeah. and of Michael's, um, both Michael's family growing up, like his parents and his siblings, and of um, Michael's kids and his wife, Tracy, who um, was so wonderful to us. And Michael's team was so wonderful to us uh, in the making of the movie. And um, they had material and they um, made like we could request certain things that we needed certain family shots or whatever and um, they made people on the team available to me to work with to get that material and um, they and they had a lot you know and it was kind of similar to you know we keep pictures of our kids and we keep home movies and of course you know their kids were kids in the 90s. So a lot of that stuff's going to be on VHS or whatever. So the teams I work with will always offer to get stuff transferred. If somebody's holding a DAT tape or a DVD or a VHS tape, you know, and I want the material off that tape, we'll arrange with somebody to get it transferred. And so we had to do that with some of Michael's material. Um, and uh, he, so he and his team um, had stuff had a lot of, you know, the family stuff that we needed and were really wonderful to work with to get to it. I've had experiences with other folks where like they'll promise and then it isn't there. And <laughs> right. um, yeah, and so it really, it depends on the subject. Sometimes some of that is um, part of the deal with the filmmakers before I even get on board. 
you know, so like, even they'll bring me on board and they'll be like, all right, um, we've got these folks that have this personal archive that they've already sent us. I'd be like, great. I just need to organize it. And then I need, okay. And then give me the list of what you need me to find. Okay. Well, these are the TV shows these people were in. I need you to go find that. And then whatever else you can find on those people, which is when I'm looking for like news footage and, you know, other people's home movies. And, and that's also when I'm working with a, a subject who's a prominent subject. And um, I'm usually clearly not in contact with the subject themselves, but um, I'm either in contact with a team member or somebody on our team who's in direct contact with that subject, but they'll pass emails along or questions that I have along. Because um, often being able to ask questions is really helpful. Like, hey, do you remember when you started filming that movie? Or do you remember um, like what countries you visited on that tour? That, so you might, you know, what countries I should approach for concerts because you happen to go on this European tour and did you actually play in Italy? Um, being able to ask those questions is really helpful too. And some folks are super helpful with that and some not so much. I thought the, the Michael J. Fox film, which I thought was really marvelous. Thank um, you. Yeah, really marvelous. And I and I really one of the things that struck me, this is before I met you, was how well documented of a person he was. Like I noticed the archival element. Um, I, I noticed that immediately. Uh, even in the trailer, you can see it. So um, you know, you, you got a lot of stuff. Yeah, there was thankfully there was a lot of stuff to get. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so that's that's great. Yeah. And uh yeah, there was a lot of good stuff out there. And you know, on that film, you know, that film is really unique in that Davis Guggenheim, who directed it, Davis had this really wonderful vision of how to use the archive to tell Michael's story. And Michael Hart, who's the um, editor on it, is just a genius editor, um, that they were able to take, you know, the things I could dig up um, or the stuff from his you know, Michael's movies and all that, they just had to have it in this pile to use to be able to create. So, um, and there was so much, and because, yeah, there's so much out there to get. Sometimes we had, I had to be, I had to ask them kind of specifically about what, or they had to say to me, you can stop bringing in X, Y, and Z. We have plenty of that. Oh, oh okay. And I'd be like, well, there's more. And they're like, yeah, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and And is there ever a moment where you feel like, like it, you know, you don't want to be invasive. Um, so there's a fine line, right, between being sort of inquisitive about certain ephemera and, you know, you don't want to step over a line. But so are you very conscious of that? Sure. And also I'm conscious of that. And when I'm reaching out to other people in somebody's world. So um, I call it, I don't want to fly too close to the sun. So if there are people I would really like to go to because I think they might have snapshots of the subject of our film I always ask whoever my point person is whether it's on the other the subjects team or our team I'd be like hey is so-and-so still friendly with these four people like is it okay if I reach out and you know oh well I don't the way they, he doesn't have contacts I'm like that's okay I'll try and find him myself but I just want to be sure that it's okay that I do it so I'm very conscious of that because I don't want to reach out to somebody um, and this even goes with, you know, you got to be careful with fans that have overdone it through the years and that right. kind of stuff. I want right. to be real careful about 
who I'm reaching out to. Um, I don't want to jeopardize. And also I don't want to jeopardize the production too. And, you know, it, it's sometimes it's very tricky, um, particularly if there's a particular project we're trying to get made, but it's, it hasn't been publicly announced yet. <laughs> you know, that one's like, so how do I approach people, but not disclose too much information about what we're doing, <laughs> but right. I need to talk to people in order to get what we need in order to do what we're doing. So that's, that's a fine line. That's a fine line too. So one thing I don't do clearly um, is I don't post, you know, you know, like back when I started on the Michael J. Fox film, I didn't post somewhere, you know, I'm looking for Michael J. Fox footage. Anybody got anything, you know, <laughs> like, right. I don't, I don't do it because you can't compromise the production and that. So um, you find ways to go about and do that um, to try to get what you need, you know, be respectful of the subject. It's, you know, I, it's it's really nice when you're working on projects that you know the the people like like I mean who doesn't love Michael J Fox he's a really right. extraordinary human being like you know so that one was easy because <laughs> he's fabulous and you know and and uh, so many people do have this deep connection to him so that that was easy but sometimes if I'm dealing with um, a topic that, or I'm, I want to use something in a context that is important and is true, but maybe is not flattering, mm. you know, that gets, that gets hard too, but it's, it's a challenge actually, but it's important because sometimes, you know, in order to tell stories that are important to tell, sometimes you need to, to do that. This may seem like a really stupid question, um, but I'm wondering if the subject is no longer alive, does that make it harder or easier? Totally depends on their estate. It, you know, some estates I've dealt with some kids that are just lovely and, you know, want their family members material used, their image used. And I've dealt with some who aren't as lovely. <laughs> so that's, that's <laughs> really, you know, it's, that's why, you know, this really is a people and a connections business. I mean, you're dealing with people's stuff. You're dealing with people's family members. You're dealing with their, you know, as we were talking back when we first started talking, their emotions and things that are, you know, that slip of paper might just be a slip of paper to you and me, but to that person, it has their deceased mother's handwriting on it and it's their whole world. So the thought of them sticking that in a FedEx container and sending it to me is just boggling their mind, you know? So it's, it's, the emotion of it and, you know, understanding that and not questioning it. Back when I was at the Rock Hall, there was a particular very famous person who um, wanted a jacket back um, and wanted that jacket. And we wanted to keep this person really happy. And um, so the best way to do it, and actually the cheapest way to do it was to put me on a plane with that jacket. And I got on the plane with that jacket and handed it to, um, that person's uh, um, costumer and saw my folks because they're LA, they were in LA. And then I got back on a plane and, and went back to Cleveland. Um, and, you know, it just, because we couldn't just stick it in a FedEx overnight. <laughs> you know? right. So, but it's amazing to me sometimes how people do stick really precious things in a FedEx overnight. I'm like, sure. oh, 
<laughs> I, one of the things that really I, I was thinking so much about Prince the other day, and I thought if someone did like a really a deep dive documentary on Prince, God, I was thinking about how well, like like his he was so careful about how he curated his music, his image, and it seems so it almost seems wrong because it seems like without him around to be the guard keeper and putting it in other people's hands, it almost feels dirty, right? So I wonder, I wonder like what that fine line is between preserving the intentions or the hopes of the artist versus the aims of the documentarian. That seems like a very tricky tightrope. Yeah, well, I think two things. One, it all depends on the gatekeepers, you know, um, and I think also things evolve over time. And you know, the first example that came to mind, this isn't exactly what you're talking about, but um, I remember a couple years ago watching TV and there was a, an ad for a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie of some sort. And okay. there, was a, there was a Beastie Boys song playing over the ad. And I was like, wait, I thought when Adam Yauk died, there was some kind of clause in his will that said that Beastie Boys music could never be used for advertising. Like, I thought I had read that. I thought I had heard that. I'm like, so why am I watching a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ad with a Beastie Boys song? And I looked it up and, you know, Googled it. And yeah, it was a thing. Somehow there was a reason that it could be used in that way. Like, I don't remember what it was, but I remember clearly I was not the only person that went, huh? Like, <laughs> so I think that there are exceptions to rules. I think there are changes in gatekeeping. I also think that um, context, you know, like when, you know, a documentary made about Woodstock in 1979 is going to be different than a documentary made about Woodstock in 2029. Mm. And for a lot of reasons, the material that you'd want to include in it is going to be owned by different people. Um, clearly, we're not going to have nearly as many people alive who were there. Um, so all of that has something to do with how documentaries get made and what stories they're trying to tell. In terms of your own children, have you seen them exhibit traits that you have in terms of archival instincts? Um, no, it really kills me when I go up to their rooms and I see like notebooks in the garbage. <laughs> oh my God, I will pull things out of the garbage. I, Cause I kept for years, like every notebook I'd ever written in, like all that, and not just journals, but like my like, fifth grade spelling papers. And, you know, it gets to a point where I, one point in my life, I was going through all that stuff. And literally I had every spelling paper from fifth grade. And I'm like, okay, Jackie, pick three. Like <laughs> you can keep three. You do not need every single spelling paper that you have. So my kids tend to go the other way. Um, my daughter who's in college, like she purges a ton and I'm usually like, ah, but I also have to remember, like, it's not my life, it's her life. And there are some things I asked for her to keep, like also like, we're both really active in Girl Scouts. Um, I was her leader for a long time. She was a gold award recipient. So there were some things that I was Girl Scout related. I asked her to keep. 
something that meant a lot to her was she went to a particular Girl Scout camp every year for like eight years in a row. And every year you get a t-shirt that every, all the counselors and campers sign. She, it was really important to her to keep those t-shirts that warmed my heart. I was like, I'm so glad you care about that. Because the thing is, is I could save everything from her childhood, but if it doesn't mean something to her, it doesn't matter as much. So if there are the few bits and pieces that might mean something to me that don't mean something to her, I'll put those aside. That's fine. But actually the cooler thing is like what means something to her and like all those camp shirts. It it really made me feel good to know that that was really important to her that we keep those. No, that's really cool. Um, In terms of what you're, so you have some projects coming up, so you're going to be busy. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, the, the plate is filling up, which is wonderful. I often work on a few things at the same time. So um, I like that. It's good for my brain. Um, So this past year at Sundance, two films I worked on last year came out at the same time. One was uh, still a Michael J. Fox movie. And the other one was Little, Little Richard, I Am Everything. And my role was different on, on both of those films. I, I spent way more time um, on the Michael J. Fox film and was much more involved in the sourcing of material on that one. On Little Richard, um, I... I did different things and there wasn't as much time. And you can tell there was a really big archival team. There was several archive producers and two really fantastic archive researchers on that film. So, um, and the film is great too. It's uh, It's been in the theaters and it'll be out on streaming and stuff um, sometime this year. But the, um, so I work on often several things at once, but in varying degrees. So I sometimes I'll have like a full-time project that I'm, that is what I am doing, but I will thread bits and pieces of other projects. Right now, I seem to be doing kind of a couple days on a couple different things. And it's good for my brain. I like it. I like um, switching off different subjects. Music is my happy place. I love working on music projects. They're my favorite. And in, in the George, is there a George Michael documentary? Well, so there have been a few, um, the, the official George one that he was working on when he died, um, that kind of morphed into a a few different things called freedom. Um, that came out a few years ago. Um, there was actually last year, they added a bunch of material to it and did a, one of those one day movie theater event screenings, which was super cool. So I went to that. Um, so that has been out and that has, was really well done. Um, there's a wham doc coming coming out this summer, which I am so excited about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know a ton about it. Um, I think I know who worked on it um, archivally. I know they already had an archive producer attached by the time I found out about it. Cause I'll find out about projects and I'll just start asking around and be like, dude, does anybody know? And are they hiring? And <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and that's the, the folks that, who do what I do, I do find um, it's a really great community of people. And for the most part, archive producers and archive researchers are helpful with each other. You know, if somebody reaches out to me and is like, hey, I, I noticed your name in the credits of this project that you did, and I'm looking for this kind of footage, where did you find that? You know, happy to share. I've done that for people. People have done it for me. So, and not, not always. Sometimes people will be like, good luck. <laughs> be like, okay. Yeah. So, you know, but it doesn't hurt to ask. So, no, super excited for the Wham Doc coming out in July on Netflix. 
Yeah, that's going to be so great. I didn't even know about that. Um, well, so cool to talk to you. This is great. I was thinking about um, there's a Crowded House song where he the line is, I want everything you throw out. <laughs> oh, it's so true. It is so true. <laughs> I was, that's the mission statement here of the archivist. Yeah. Uh, but a joy to talk to you. This is so interesting. And I, and I appreciate you um, taking the time to chat. Thanks, Alex. So nice to talk with you, too. was such a great chat. Jackie Clary, what a cool conversation. Um, the kind that makes you look around your house and think, should I keep that or should I throw it away? Um, and of course, it depends on what you got. JackieClary.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with her. She's an amazing person. Her website is dynamic, energetic, and filled with information. JackieClary.com. J-A-C-K-I-E-C-L-A-R-Y. Com. Go there and see what she's all about. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. There is a new book. The Adventure Teen All-Stars is my new novel. It will be out in October. Why? Because there's a monster in it. So it seems appropriate. Until I figure out threads, you can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor, or you can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. BombshellRadio.com will tell you all you need to know about what makes our radio station tick. And don't forget, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, and tell all your friends. Thank you, as always, for listening to our program. Let's close things off with Sweet Nobody. Five Star Diary seems in keeping with the archival theme of today's show. Thank you again, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio.